Hi, everybody. Mitch Horowitz is back with us, a perennial favorite with our audience, both here and on Gaia. And we're going to keep progressing his story because he has spent his entire life looking at how we master the art of bringing our dreams and our desires to fruition without going down the new age rabbit hole and, and often, oftentimes wandering off into even delusion. So this is a very, um, I think a very grown up conversation that we're continuing with his newest book, The Secrets of Self Mastery. Mitch, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Great to see you again. You know what? This book, I, 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 because I have a history with you for several books now, I really like to take the parts and really progress that story forward. And one of the things you got into in this book, which we will do in just a little bit, is the notion of what our chief, we always look at what our greatest skills, our greatest desires, we, we look at that. But you, what our chief weaknesses are, because it's really the weakness that holds us back from what we're trying to get done, but it can also be the conveyance for our own personal evolution. So yes. it's, it's a double-edged sword uh, or a double-edged feather, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> quill. That's wonderfully put. Our weaknesses and our strengths are not only intimately related, but one could even say that they're the same in the sense that life is a polarity as above, so below. It really could be argued that what I consider to be my greatest strength and what I consider to be my greatest weakness are, call it a polarity, call it a yin-yang, whatever you may, it's one whole. It's all part of one thing. And I've been working with that concept more and more in my own search over the past year. So identifying one's chief weakness not only is helpful in terms of managing relationships and realizing the barriers that are inevitably going to occur and going to crop up during day-to-day -day life, but it also might provide a hint as to what our real strength is. Like, for example, I try to be very frank with the reader. Well, yeah, I'm not going to let you tell just yet because you and I are going to share in a little bit because you and I share the same weakness. <laughs> we share the same no, <laughs> the way we approach it in the same way so yeah. what I want to do is I'm I'm teasing people just a little bit with this we're going to get to our weaknesses and how we work uh -huh. with them but first I want to start building forward because you have been doing a lot of workshops and one of them you did in Denver about a year ago or so which is included in this news book um, you had some really insightful questions, deep questions from the attendees. And I like the fact that you're really humble that way. You even set it up. We're learning from each other. We're always learning all the time from one another. So do you mind if I dive into a few of those questions? Please. Okay, go for it. One of the people was saying, I read Think and Grow Rich when I was young. However, it just didn't make sense to me because uh, Napoleon Hill talked about the fact that we need to have this burning desire. And he said, I didn't ever have a burning desire, but what mm -hmm. I did have was trust. Tell yes. us this story and, and the value of it. And then I'm going to chime in on it. Of course. I really appreciated the questions that came up in that workshop because they were intelligently very, very challenging questions. And they go straight to the heart of what we're here for, what it is we wish to be doing with our lives. And this one gentleman raised the question of why. Why is it necessary to have a burning desire? Why is it so necessary to strive, to wish to attain? And he challenged me and said, look, my attitude 
is one of trust. I assume that if somebody wants me to do a job, if somebody wants me to show up somewhere, I'm needed and I'll go okay and I'll show up and that's what's governed my life. I don't have this wish, this burning need. And I heard him out and I thought what he described was powerful, was worthwhile, and I have no challenge to it, but it's not my path. It's not my path. My path is one of attainment. My path is one of aspiration. And if an individual says, hey, that's not for me, I'm into trust, I'm into non-attachment, I'm into non-identification, I'm into service, I salute that, but I would have to challenge that person back, be sure that you mean it, be sure that you mean it. Because I think a terrible trap that we can get into sometimes is copping to virtues that we don't really possess, that we think we ought to possess, that we think sounds spiritually right and correct, that we think will bring us praise from our peer group, including the peer group that just exists in our heads. So if your path is one of attainment, as mine is, embrace that. Let's address it honestly and ethically. If your path is one of, of trust, of non-attachment, of service, whatever one wants to put to it, just be sure that you really feel that. Be sure that you really feel that because nothing will fritter away our energies more than telling ourselves we embrace something that we really don't. Absolutely true to have that internal congruence. And I'm going to chime in on that because, uh, and I think the greatest sense, I actually relate to that story. And it is a, I have a very kind of yin way of approaching life. Um, I ended up in the media on a dare, didn't want to do media, been in it my whole life, but started recognizing as the years went on that I was supposed to be in media, that I could use it for some good and go beyond the things I was doing on network television and, and local networks. And so it kind of had, a, it became, it had a life force of its own, even though I wasn't passionate about it nor attached to it. But this, this subtle sense of A, having that trust that I'm doing what I need to be doing. And, the, and then listening to this subtle voice kind of inviting me forward, geez, wouldn't it be nice to do a show on whatnot? It would come in almost like a gentle breeze and something that would make me feel good. I can't say I've ever had a burning desire for any of it, but I just kept feeling it and it kept kind of having this this little upward motion inside my being. And because I'm essentially not very ambitious and kind of lazy. And so it's only that little voice, that, that feeling, oh, this would be good. I think this would be useful that kept me moving forward all these years in the media. I mean, does that make sense to you? Oh, it definitely your way. I honor it. I honor it. I have to confess, it's not my way. Yeah, I know. I'm a very hot-blooded, Sagittarian, <laughs> fire sign, you know, kind of figure, and I really dive into things. And I sometimes, Regina, to relax, but not only to relax, but to just try to understand more about life, I read a lot of celebrity biographies, not necessarily because I'm super interested in the lives of celebrities, but because sometimes, even in the midst of a very polished, sometimes ghost-written book, a celebrity will disclose something about him or herself that's very true, and you learn something about the times we live in, you learn something about yourself. And I've been touched by biographies I've read of um, different entertainers from different generations. One was Sammy Davis Jr., the other was Paul Stanley, the front man for Kiss. And they both said extraordinarily similar things, even though they're very different individuals, which was that 
When they were growing up, people were cruel to them for various reasons. For Sammy, it had more to do with racism. For Paul, it more to do with being kind of a misfit. And their path to stardom was catapulted by that cruelty that they felt they were trying to recover from. And again, you know, I thought to myself, the common, the conventional approach to, the, uh, to, to, to encountering that kind of material, especially within our new age culture, is to say, hey, you can't fill a, fill a hole in your psyche with outer success. You can't make yourself feel better by glomming on to fame or, or, or property or what have you. And my approach to that is be very careful with that judgment. Be very yeah, careful. I because, agree. You know, you don't know that until you've actually attempted it. Very often those things are getting said by people who haven't walked that road and they might not know that maybe for those individuals that was an element of the satisfaction that they were looking for. Perhaps not the only thing. I mean, obviously, we have to have self-understanding and a variety of, to a degree, to the best degree that we're capable. But I just want to tear the lid off of everything that I grew up assuming, even with respect to spiritual values, and say, how do I know that's true unless I've walked that road and researched it? Again, it comes back to this idea of everything being one. We call things attachment. We call things non-attachment, but what we're really looking for is self-expression. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it comes in as a gentle breeze, more like it does with me, or whether it comes in like a fire in your belly, either yeah. way, it's inviting us forward into the thing that we we do, that we want to do, that we want to express. So I, I like the fact that you put that out there because these are distinctly different and equally effective ways of working. It depends on you, the individual. Another one that came up was, it was a foreign uh, person, I don't know, I can't remember which country they're from, and saying, you know, it's interesting, I notice in America, everyone's striving, striving for something, but are, is what they're striving for going to bring them what they want? Is it useful or is it just striving because they're Americans and they want more of everything? That is such a wonderful point. I'm glad you picked up on the fact that that was someone from overseas. That was a man from England who brought up that point. And I often hear this with European audiences. People will say, you guys in America seem so painfully driven. You seem to not sleep, you seem to constantly work. And is that really a helpful way to live? Is that really an enriching way to live in the deepest sense? So this man from England brought the question of why? Why is it necessary to buy into these values that can seem like very conventionally American values, the striving and so on? And it's an interesting question because first of all, it opens up onto so, 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 so much. Obviously, there are other nations from which we can learn. Italy, France, England, there may be ways of life there that we Americans have something to learn from. At the same time, at the same time, those societies, along with other societies, including nations of the East, historically, those societies were very stratified by class, by economics, in ways that were more deeply felt than certainly what we know today. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, in certain nations of the world, advanced nations like a France, technologically advanced, industrially advanced, like a France or an England, and this was true in India too, the position that you were born in was almost certain to be the position that you would die in 
barring some radically unforeseen circumstance. And so part of what I think is so attractive and so appealing about American society at its best is that it presents people with the possibility mm -hmm. of mobility, authentic mobility. And sometimes the ideal falls short, there are other complexities and issues, but that principle seems to be there for people. It, it, it's certainly something that many people are moved by, whether you call it idealistic or whether you call it pragmatic. And I suppose, again, listening to this man, I'm listening to him as an American who's listening to an Englishman, but I'm also listening to him as a seeker who's connecting with another seeker. And again, I honor it, I honor it, but I've walked both paths. I've walked both paths. I've felt in my life this polarity between just being, just being, and between striving. And the periods in my life where I felt more at home, more comfortable, more at ease in my own skin, have been those periods of striving. And I'm not prepared to put a label on that, a label like attachment or a label like identification or a label like, I don't know, you know, hyperactivity. Those are periods in my life that through the laboratory of experience have proven the most satisfying to me. This is true. And without sounding, you know, American centric, I mean, I think there's a reason people around the world uh, often try to make their way here because there is this kind of a, sh a shininess about um, having to do with possibility. And as you say, in stratified societies, culturally stratified societies, this isn't as possible. And England itself has a very stratified culture, even today. And I'm a bit of an Anglophile and a Francophile. <laughs> I love going to their countries and I love the cultural components. But yeah. if I'm going to try to get something done like doing this show or try to bring something like to a, cor a huge corporation like Gaia, like Open Minds, I know that it's going to seed, the potential for seeding of that is going to happen more easily here because of that collective mindset of possibility. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's not as though it can't be done elsewhere. I think there's just maybe a little more resistance to get the buy-in from the rest of the, the people around you that are needed in order to bring something large, you know, to the fore. Well, know? I think that's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons why so much of the popular metaphysics that's read around the world today is emergent from America. It has come from other nations. It has come yeah. from other times and places. But if you look at the really, really massive books of self-help, Alcoholics Anonymous, Think and Grow Rich, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Science of Getting Rich. Almost always those books sprang forth from America and circulated around the world. It is part of the national ethos. It is indeed. And yet at the same time, we can learn a lesson or two from the Italians to honor and, and the French and the English, uh, particularly French and Italians, I've noticed, and, and uh, even uh, other people in the Arabic nations, which is take time for your friends, your family, have a cup of coffee or tea together, take yes. hours to talk and to be with one another. That's what passes us by oftentimes. We, we tend to sacrifice our social interactions at the expense of expressing ourselves and getting where we want to go. So again, we can all learn from each other, an incredible balance, uh, balancing act. Now, another one of the people brought up something I just love. And one of the things you talking, you talk about is uh, thy will 
be done, right? And for, I think the first one is thy will, my will. Okay, yes. thy will, my will. Everyone has a different idea of what that means. This is the biggie. This is the <laughs> one I always get in trouble for. But I have to be frank with my readers, and the only frankness I can offer is the uh, 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 a microscope that I place my own search under, and I try to share what I experience in my search in hopes and in belief that it's never just exclusive to any one individual. What one person experiences is something that other people, sometimes very large numbers of people experience. I came to feel that there was a self-contradiction built into a lot of our spiritual culture, both traditional and alternative, that deferred to this idea of, of thy will be done, which of course is, 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 is immortalized in one of the great prayers of Christianity. And I came to feel that as a seeker, that principle was tearing me into, was tearing me into. Because as I was really honest with myself, I came to feel that I was praying, in effect, my will be done, while really hoping that my will was somehow in comportment with the will of a higher power or a greater power. And that somehow, if I could bring myself into alignment with this, I would get carried downstream in just the right way. And I came to feel there was something hypocritical about that. And I came to look at other religious traditions, both Judeo-Christian, Eastern, and Hermetic. And they also all have the principle that the individual is made in the image of the creator. Again, the hermetic principle is as above, so below. In scripture, it says God made man in his own image. And there's lots of religious ideas that hold to the principle that we, the individual, are simply a <clears throat> an image of some greater force, greater power that exists concentrically all around us. And if that's so, and if one takes that seriously, doesn't it stand to reason that the individual's desire to create is cause enough, is reason enough, is sacred enough? And I grew uncomfortable with this concept of thy will be done because I thought it creates a kind of artificiality, if not hypocrisy, in a lot of our spiritual culture where people have these desires, they have these wishes, and I honor them. I honor them. I share them, I celebrate them, but they feel they have to process them in some way that almost distances themselves from them. I think it's possible to pursue ethics, reciprocity, a right sense of karma without necessarily entering into that, that formula of, of thy will be done. I think one can say my will be done, but still feel compelled to act as an ethical being to act with reciprocity towards other people, which again comes back to this idea of oneness, of wholeness. I, I agree with you on this one, Mitch. And, you know, even in my youth, I thought, wait a minute. And when I was very young, looking at it in a very naive way, thy will be done, I looked at it as though we're, we're all waiting for another power to tell us what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And it never made sense to me that an ent such an entity would even have the space on any cognitive level I could understand to be assigning um, 
assigning tasks or assigning life paths to billions of people, right? It just never made sense. So that's from a childlike point of view. But as an adult, and looking at it as a more mature adult, um, going with the hermetic texts in particular, we're looking at the notion of higher mind. And as you say, this higher mind soul complex is already connected into the divine. And that mm -hmm. aspect is constantly whispering through to us for ourselves to be able to express this unique, wonderful thing each one of us brings to this planet, to explore, to learn, to share, even sometimes to teach. I mean, we each have a purpose that's unique. That higher voice is always there whispering to us, connected with the divine. It is part of the divine, right? So That's my conviction. At yeah. this point in my search, that's very much my conviction. That's where I am today. Ten years from now, I might be in a different place, but that's where I've come to now. Yeah. You, okay, we're on the same page there. Let's talk about weaknesses, because oftentimes in New Age texts, we don't get around to the weaknesses. And, we, and as you mentioned, oftentimes um, talk therapy is not going to override deeply held emotional traumas and responses to life. So let's talk about weakness. Yes. Weaknesses. That is one of the things I write in the book. I, I think that our culture is very infused with a therapeutic perspective and therapeutic language that suggests that if you can peel back the onion of your life and find some antecedent in youth, in early childhood, a trauma, a lack of attachment, a sense of abandonment, that identifying that root cause, so to speak, will help you figure out and determine your repeat behaviors. And I grew up believing in that, as many of us did. And I, I, I certainly honor the therapeutic path. I honor the path of self-discovery. But I think we have vested too much faith in that core therapeutic idea that illuminating some root cause, some antecedent, will be healing, will be cathartic. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true. I have to say, years ago, I had a little hypnotherapy clinic and that, to dig around into these subconscious motivations, these, these um, as you call them, uh, chief weaknesses that we all possess. And this is hard work. It's not usually available to us on the level of being able to just consciously feel back and chat. It requires something much deeper in ourselves. And you have an interesting way of relating to it. Yes. What I came to feel is that one needs to pay attention to effects. And I came to observe that whatever the root cause and effect that I was projecting and propagating in my life over and over, and this is where I'm going to disclose my chief weakness, not to be morbidly self-disclosing, because if I'm asking the reader to do it, why shouldn't I be willing to do it? And that is I, I came to observe in myself a repeat pattern of, of paranoia, to put it plainly, to put it bluntly, not the kind of paranoia that believes that people are engaged in plots against me or something of that nature, but the paranoia of a kind of a, an everyday nagging feeling that something is wrong if somebody doesn't return an email or a phone call or a text message or what have you. A very sort of self-centered, frankly, paranoia that I wasn't going to get the goodies you know, that I wanted. And I think probably that uh, behavior, you know, on my part, placed a burden on relationships and on other people that was unnecessary. And 
the mere identification of that in and of itself is not healing, but it does give me a baseline from which to observe myself. And I think we have to be really, really blunt and self-disclosing and self-revealing uh, about our chief weaknesses. And again, I, I offer this not because I feel like shouting something unappealing about myself from the rooftops, but because I want to encourage this kind of self-disclosure uh, in other people, if I'm at least willing to be transparent about it myself. I believe that a lot of us enter the spiritual culture, spend decades of our lives within the spiritual culture, having experiences that might be powerful, but those experiences don't necessarily impact how I behave or how my neighbor behaves on Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. And I've seen a lot of people fail to live up to their potential because they substitute experiences for life change. And experiences can be a lot like flying up in an airplane or a helicopter or something, looking out the window and seeing the world below and feeling this transcendent sense of perspective, and it's wonderful. But then you land, you're the same person in the same place with the same habits, with the same, very often, uh, with the same patterns of behavior. So it's insufficient to have experiences. There has to be a true determination to identify those things in life that might be holding me back, that might, be, that might be holding my neighbor back. That's for him to identify. I have known people within the New Age culture who, for example, have had wonderful experiences, but they've never, occulti they've never cultivated accountability, for example. They don't show up for things on time. And it, it degrades their experience in life. I've known brilliant, brilliant artists within the new age culture who suffer from problems with rage and they've never identified it. And this rage will come out in various ways that lays waste of their relationships it goes on and on. So I think that sometimes pursuing these ultimate questions of life can become almost a distraction, almost entertainment in a way. If hand in hand with that, hand in hand with that, we're not working with these real, real areas where we stumble, we fall, we repeat behaviors, we hurt other people. And without that, our experiences in the normal hours of daily life are never going to really improve. You're so right about that. And I think it's, I think it's really important that we all, und everybody understand, and I'm not saying this as a bumper sticker, every single one of us is flawed. We all suffer from some form of feeling isolated, some kind of guilt, some kind of shame, some kind of judgment. All of every human being, I have never met an exception. Maybe one, maybe one person. <laughs> I've actually, other than this one person, I have never met an exception to this. And yeah. she, probably argue otherwise herself. And so it, we're, we're so terrified, particularly in the New Age community where there's such a high bar that we're setting for reality and for ourselves, yeah. very hard to take this shadow side on, as you say. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. Now, this shadow side that you speak of also propels you into a type of compensation that actually works for you. Let's talk about that part. 
Yes. You know, it's really remarkable the extent to which failure, falling down, disappointment becomes tremendously self-fortifying if we can allow it to. And that might sound like a sweet and syrupy idea, and I would suggest that it's anything but. It's anything but. When we suffer, that suffering is enough to disrupt and shake up calcified habits of thought, maybe calcified patterns of relationships that we're in, maybe suffering, maybe suffering means that we really need to take a second look at certain relationships, certain associations, whether they're family relationships, whether they're friendships, you know, save us from our friends. Sometimes our friends can be the most difficult burden that any of us have to carry, whether it's coworkers or whether it's just bad patterns of behavior or something that we're doing that's not netting the result that we're looking for. Failure and suffering and difficulty, painful as it is, painful as it is, can be so extraordinarily instructive if we allow it to be. Um, Nietzsche wasn't joking when he wrote, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Rumi wasn't joking when he wrote, pray for a tough instructor. No great figure, no ethical figure from Lao Tzu to Marcus Aurelius to Ralph Waldo Emerson was joking when observing that suffering serves to disrupt calcified and ineffective thoughts, actions, relationships. And I really want people to look at these things very freshly and very carefully because the words can sound familiar, but the profundity is felt only in application, only in application. I see people who fritter away tremendous vast hours of their lives because, for example, they're around people who are cruel to them. They're around people who are hostile to them. And sometimes the spiritual advice is you have to forgive, you have to fix yourself, don't worry about the other person, ignore the other person, change yourself, you know. And my feeling is actually the individual is entitled to be around nurturing relationships. The individual is entitled to be around people who don't behave with hostility. In fact, in fact, sometimes the problem is in environment, relationship setting. Sometimes the problem is in myself. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes I'm hanging around people perhaps who are reinforcing my worst traits in one way or another. Whatever the case may be, the weakness that one feels, the suffering that one feels, and I know how painful it is, and I would never make light of it. People suffer in this life, and I take that very seriously. But there almost always is a vital, urgent, important lesson in that that can be more fortifying than success, even though success is what we all crave. Again, um, it, I like interviewing you also because sometimes it's an echo chamber because we're, we have a lot of the same uh, philosophies, you know, I have to say. But, you know, when, you're, when we are going through these painful uh, reactions to life, for example, it's simply reflecting to us what exists in the subconscious mind, which is below the level of our conscious awareness. But it shows us through our feelings and reactions to life, it's speaking to us. We may not know the precipitating event that made us feel angry or cruel or judgmental, but the fact that it's showing itself in this moment means it exists and you don't have to peel back the layers of the onion, but you do need to look at it. And, and 
you know, I have the same one as you. If someone doesn't return a call for a few days, I immediately think, what did I do wrong? You know, that you call it paranoia, that kind of worry. I assume that I've done something wrong. Um, I'm going to be abandoned. And, and so like you, I go for a plan B. Well, if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Everything's okay. And I create my plan B. So there's a stability at the core as a response to that. So we're very similar in that way. Each person is different in these, these emotions that keep presenting themselves throughout a lifetime until we look at them. Even something as simple as impatience. I'm very impatient when I'm driving on the freeway. You know, I want to be in the fast lane. I don't want to be mean to anyone, but I want to get where I'm going without obstruction. (laughs) And so then I start finding, wait a minute, that person ahead of me or the person who just came over has every right to be in this spot too. They're just trying to get where they're going. Chill out. What makes you think you have any priority to get there any faster than another person? And then I have to look inside. Yeah, what, what creates that? You know, all of us have these bugaboos that we need to start examining in order to be able to even effectively end this incarnation more mm-hmm. intact than we started it. Yes, yes. And, you know, probably the truth is, Regina, all of us to some greater or lesser extent had attachment issues as kids. We're human beings. Yeah. We're- were flawed. It could even be that the parable of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, if you see it in a psychological sense, could be a universal human parable. Yes. We're all going to experience friction with the father or the mother. It is human nature. So to a greater or lesser extent, all but a very, very rare few of us probably had some sort of attachment issues as kids. And those attachment issues get reworked and um, reconfigured in adulthood, either as insecurity or hostility or what have you. We all have them. But the question is, how can we go at them in a way that deals with the effects, that deals mm-hmm. with the effects rather than getting kind of ca- caught up in this morbid self-disclosure? So I wrote the book, you know, partly because I really wanted to deal with, with effects, effects that I hope can, if addressed, can drastically improve a person's quality of life. Okay, now we get into a fun part, a part that I really um, have great esteem for and respect for, and that is going back and starting to respect our earliest desires in life. The ones that the teenager, that the school system, that the parents and society throws away saying it might be frivolous or maybe, you know, you're not going to make money at that path. Let's look at the value of remembering our very earliest desires. That has become very powerful for me. And that became a very powerful exercise for me several years ago. I began to realize that even when we're very, very young, even as young as sometimes age three, age four, certainly by age five, we start to have a fantasy life, a rich fantasy life. And people sort of say, gee, every kid, at least of a certain generation, wanted to be a, a fireman or a ballerina or an astronaut or what have you. And yet those things are very interesting because if you can clue in to what your fantasy life was at age four, let's mm-hmm. say, we do have cognizance at that age. We do form long-term memories. It's an incredible window into yourself because I don't think 
a kid really starts to get heavily impacted by peer pressure until just a little older than that. I think peer pressure is probably asserting itself on kids at younger and younger ages nowadays because there's just so much mass media. So this is probably changing. But it seems to me that when you're age four, at least of my generation, this may no longer be true today because of just 24-7 digital media. But you're not fully in the grip of peer pressure yet, and you can start to learn something essential about yourself if you really, really permit yourself to go back to those earliest, earliest memories and fantasies and fantasies. It can be so revealing. And one can say, well, gee, once I have that information, can I act on it? You know, life presents so many demands. Is it possible to act on it? And I would say, is it possible? Yes. Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? We don't know. We don't know. But have the information. Be aware of that. And ask what it was that you were yearning for at that pre-peer pressure age that might inform you as to what your real aim is in life. It can be so valuable. And we have to remember, it may not be the purpose for our living. It may not have anything to do with what, how we're expressing ourselves professionally, but it's feeding us on another level. And for me, the first book I picked up at five was a coffee table ballet book and taught myself the first, you know, the five positions in ballet. And um, because I wasn't deemed to have a ballerina body, I didn't get to take lessons. But later in life, I would take modern dance and, um, you know, I, just, I was a crazy disco girl at one point, and then, you know, Argentine tango, and then years of ballet, and now I'm taking tap dancing. But I noticed that um, throughout my life, what, what dance actually meant was a type of fuel for joy. It, my purpose in life is what I do. But the thing that keeps my tank full, I notice this because if I don't dance for a while, I start losing my luster. I start losing some joy in life. So that is my fuel that prepares me, uh, propels me forward into a state of joy to do what I do and offer what I have um, for a living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And it's so important to be, to be self-aware you know, in that regard. I've had the good fortune that the things I dreamt of that I fantasized about when I was four years old, when I was five years old, I've been able to come into much later in adulthood. And that's been one of the joys of my life. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually what got me started on thinking about questioning this model of attachment of non-identification. I, you know, it's the funniest thing. I remember once I was coming back from a vacation and I was arriving back at Kennedy airport here in New York city, which is home. And Kennedy is not the world's greatest place to fly into. It's a very kind of anarchic, somewhat dreary, chaotic place and I got back and I felt really really depressed and I got a phone call from a producer at NPR and she said she wanted me to come on the next day to discuss the topic of miracles and suddenly my mood was dramatically lifted I felt a sense of purpose I felt my definite chief aim and one could look at that and say oh that's just candy that's just a sugar high that's just a temporary fix and I thought to myself no know that i felt alive again i'm standing in the middle of kennedy airport and 
I'm suddenly happy and I felt alive and I felt purposeful and I'm looking forward to the next day. That put me on a scent trail that made me start to question everything that we refer to as a fix or sugar high or attachment or identification. I was getting in touch with my work, what I'm supposed to be doing. It was meaningful. I totally get it. I totally get it. And so now we talk about one area um, in your life when you were young and intuitive told you that you really had a desire for power and, yeah. you, and you felt kind of shame around it. Like kind of icky. Yeah. And yet let's talk about the truth of what that means before we get into our final subject. It was such a trip. It was years ago. And I was in a parking lot having a conversation with a woman who's a psychic, fairly well-known psychic. And she said to me, as you just alluded, you know what you want? What you want is power. And she said, you have an overdeveloped superego. And what you actually want is power. And when she first said it, I felt, no, no. I want to push that away. I want to push that away. I don't want to be aggressive. I don't want to step on other people. I don't want to tell other people what to do. It sounded very unspiritual to me. And it sounded the opposite of where I felt myself to be at that time in my search. But I could never forget it. I could never forget it. It was such a matter-of-fact statement. And it really stayed with me. And as years passed, I had to come back to it and say, you know what? She was correct. She was correct. I do want power, not the power to push other people around or tell other people what to do. I don't want to be the boss man, but I, I want power that gives me the means, that gives me the agency to see through what I wish to accomplish in the world. I want that kind of power. I want to work with friends and collaborators where there's tremendous mutual respect. I want to be able to see something through from the seedling of an idea through its concretization in the world. I really do want that. And I feel her assessment was right. And it took me years to acknowledge it because I just didn't like the sound of it. I couldn't, I couldn't face it. I couldn't deal with it. So we have to uh, discern and embrace what our true desire is and not judge it. It's there for a reason. It's coming from inside of us, whether, like I said, it's a breeze or a fire, doesn't matter. It's coming from inside of us to express itself. And that train wants to move through us and to deny it, to squash it, to take ourselves down a different road. And the thing I'm going to bring up now um, is not beneficial. So how many of us in our lives, I would say very high percentage of people, um, including our friends watching this, have, quote, made their deals with the devil mm -hmm. in order to be able to kind of live a life more or less less what they what they would like to like what they would like to experience. And now we're seeing it in a very large scale globally. We're seeing it in in mass culturally. Well, you have to do your deals with the devil to get what you want, you know, in the end. What is your feeling about doing deals with the devil? for expediency's sake, or somehow to think we're going to get what we want? Well, it's an interesting question. I, of course, I bring a different outlook to this vocabulary than, than people sometimes have. My concept of what we sometimes refer to as the satanic or the Luciferian has to do with a, a radical nonconformity, an emancipation, a, a heroic rebelliousness. I feel that we've lost touch with some of the associations that our ancient ancestors had with the snake, the serpent, right. 
of liberation, uh, knowledge, emancipation. I love the figure of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods, so to speak, and bringing it to earth so that humanity can go forth. I hear you. Let me just interject one thing while you go on this explanation. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the human spirit of rebellion and creation. I'm talking about where we compromise ourselves. We compromise our ethics. Yes. We do the ethics things that we know don't feel right to us. Yes. Ethics and honor and conformity, those are the things that I see as, as places where we risk it all. I think we do evil. We do evil when we sign on to something that would reduce another person's opportunity to reach for his or her own full self-potential. Anytime we degrade an individual or a community of individuals in such a way that it would disrupt their capacity for reaching for self-expression, self we do evil. And when we make bargains, for example, with uh, a reduction in quality, a reduction in transparency, a reduction in plain dealing, a, a delivery of something to the end user that's not really what we say that we're offering, that to me is evil. And that's done to the other as it's done to self, because I believe ultimately in cosmic reciprocity, there is one wholeness among humanity. And I believe that the individual has to come up with his or her own deepest, deepest code of ethics. It can't be done for us. It can't be handed down to us. Life in the 21st century, I think, is so complex that it behooves the individual to come up with his or her own set of ethics and honor, which can have a lot in common with classical religion, classical ethics, classical literature, but it must be one's own and it must be for real and it must be deeply felt and it's not going to be handed to you by anyone proffering uh, a book of, 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 of references, parables, principles, vocabulary. That becomes a way of just complimenting oneself and seeing the problem as lying somewhere else. Whereas the problem lies with me if I craft a code of honor and ethics and fail to live up to it if I violate the reciprocity of another, if I do violence, not in terms of self-defense, but violence in terms of preventing another individual from aspiring to his or her own highest sense of self. That's where real vanity comes in. We have to be willing to examine our own behavior day to day and see how it succeeds or fails based on a real authentic code of ethics. Not something that's been handed down to us, but something that we live by um, for failure or for success. Here, here. And the reason I brought it up is because so many people that I encounter now say, you know, with kind of, you know, circles around the eyes of fatigue, <clears throat> saying, I just don't know what to believe anymore. Well, that's intentional. You know, we have a world out there that is really almost set up to deceive in a sense, you know, mislead, deceive, and, and inform, but it's all jumbled together, and discernment is very difficult right now, and that's exactly what I believe is we have to turn to that essential code of, that, of ethics in ourselves to determine the correct answer for ourselves. I think you said it so beautifully. I have nothing more to say on that. Any final thoughts, Mitch, before we say goodbye? Just my deepest wish to all your listeners that they keep searching, uh, that they, they keep 
verifying things for themselves, verifying things for themselves, think, study, look, search, individually and community, uh, don't accept anything that anybody hands to you. Verify everything through the laboratory of experience. Couldn't agree more. As always, Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And I wish you the best on the sales of your new book because it's useful information I think people need to be exposed to. Again, the title of the book, Secrets of Self-Mastery. So until next time, thanks again, Mitch. Thank you. You can also go to Mitch's website at MitchHorowitz.com. Again, the name of the book, Secrets of Self-Mastery. He has a lot of other wonderful books there, some of which I've interviewed him on. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.